Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The chapter began with the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and his appearance to two women. And now it's going to conclude with the appearance of Jesus to the 11. And then the final instructions concerning our witness and our service as the people of God and the church of God. The Duke of Wellington called these instructions the marching orders of the church. It's a kind of divine warrant. And you may not know what that word warrant originally meant, but it meant an authoritative declaration or permission in order to fulfill a divine purpose. And so this is the divine purpose that's given to the apostles and the disciples. The warrant contains explicit instructions in the form of four alls in the passage. The risen Savior declares that he has all authority in verse 18, which provides the basis for global missionary adventure. It describes the secret of our service. Yes, missionaries are in a very real sense a part of God's secret service. It's going to be a clandestine mission in many ways, but it's also going to be overt in many ways. Next, he's going to describe the scope of the service, all of the nations in verse 19. These aren't just political or geographical or sovereign nations, but rather these are people groups. The word nations is ethnos. We get the word ethnic from it. These are people groups that are distinguished by race and language and culture and religion and geography. So it might be all of those things or a combination of those things. Next comes the substance of the service. At the end in verse 20, teaching all things. Verse 20, at the beginning of verse 20. And finally, we're strengthened for that service. I am with you all the days, or as the King James Version puts it, and the New King James Version puts it, all ways. Part of what I want you to begin to think about now as we come to the end of Matthew's gospel that claims that Jesus is the king, the Jewish religion had failed to save them. Because the Jewish religion was never intended to save them. The Jewish religion was 
intended to be a revelation of a God who would reveal who he is and what he desired in the purpose of a savior. Greek philosophy had failed them. Roman law and rule had failed them. Where the world found more, where, where they were supposed to find moral and spiritual guidance, they found further corruption. And so part of what you need to begin to understand is that in order for God to save people, he was going to save them. Not just through a religious system of belief, but rather a real person, the person of Jesus Christ. And so we begin with the king's unlimited authority in verses 16 through 18. Look what it says. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. In verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Again, I need to refresh you in the chapter. The angel told the women, go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead and indeed he's going before you into the Galilee in verse 7. Then Jesus repeats, go and tell my brethren to go to the Galilee and there you will see me, verse 10. This is the same appearance that's recorded in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 18. And it also is a description of what Paul hints at in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, when he says that our Savior was seen by upwards of 500 people. We're not told which mountain in the Galilee they were to go to. The importance isn't so much the location, but rather that it was the place, note what it says, appointed for them in verse 16. Judas went to the place that was appointed for him. The disciples and the apostles are going to go to the place that was appointed for them. As hard as this is to believe, you have an appointment of where you're going to go and who you're going to go with. The reality is that God is calling you into a relationship and friendship with him through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the disciples and the apostles have gathered at a predetermined rendezvous location that was commanded by Jesus. Again, we might think of this as the place of appointment. Jesus is able to use men and women who go to the place where he instructs them, instructs them to go, to go to the place. He, he says, I want you to go to the place where you will hear from me, where I can strengthen you, where you will obey me. You see, whatever good your spiritual gift may have, your spiritual gift becomes worthless unless you make it available to God. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? It's one thing to be gifted, but it's another thing to make your gift available to him. The disciples come with all their fears, with all of their doubts, 
with all of their hopes, with all of their misgivings, the 11 are there. But I suspect again that the gathering on the mountain begins to swell as the 11 are there, but then also the other 100 plus people who were in the upper room, they gather there. And I'm going to suggest to you again that Paul's remembrance of having Jesus having been seen of upwards of 500 witnesses, that Jesus is going to give these instructions to the largest audience possible. And since the mission applies to the whole church, I believe that men are there and women are there, the young are there, the old are there, the convinced are there, the skeptical are there, just like now. John Corson writes, quote, on any given Sunday, we sense the Lord's presence and we worship him. But some doubt. Even then, some doubted, unquote. Now I'm going to suggest to you at this point, all the apostles believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. Even doubting Thomas believes. Perhaps some of the people who accompany the apostles to the mountain, they notice a man standing in the distance. They're standing there. Remember, they've heard the stories. Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus is risen from the dead. And in the back of their mind, there's this pounding thought. People don't come back to life. It can't possibly be true. And then they see off in the distance someone who looks like Jesus. But I want you to start where the text brings us. The Great Commission will begin, first of all, with the disciples being available. Second of all, with a recognition of Jesus and worship. You see, there will be no Great Commission. There will be no instructions. There will be no authority or empowering presence until that happens. In order to reach a lost and a dying world with the gospel, you have to believe it. You have to make yourself available to it. You have to be able to recognize Jesus, and not just any Jesus, but the Jesus that's described in the New Testament. The Jesus that we've been reading about through every chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. We have to be willing to make ourselves available. We have to recognize Jesus, worship Jesus. We have to be willing to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to begin to talk a little bit about that. Who are we and what, what do we do? Why do we exist? We as a church exist to worship God and to disciple the saints and to reach the lost and to fellowship with one another. But in order to do that, it begins with worship. It continues with discipleship. It's worship and discipleship that gives us the ability to bring some sort of effective witness and evangelism to a watching world. Notice they worship Jesus. 
as Lord and God. And you have to understand the context. We see the risen Savior. Now think about it. They show up and there is Jesus. He's the living Lord of the universe. He's not simply the king of the Jews. He's the king of the planet earth and he is the king of the universe. And I believe that their doubts and their confusion begin to lift. That the shattered dreams that they had walked in before. The fragmented pain of losing someone that they love began to reform in their hearts. Now again, we can't ignore what the text says, but some still doubted. That's amazing to me. Twofold. It's amazing to me that they doubt. Number two, it's amazing to me about the honesty of the scripture. The scriptures are brutally honest. People who write their own histories, they tend to exaggerate their strengths. They downplay their weaknesses. When we meet people, we don't automatically go to the worst place. When I was at the National Day of Prayer, when people said, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I would say, I'm Gino Geraci, I'm the pastor of Calvary South Denver. I'm, I have a daily radio program on the Salem Network. I, I didn't say, I am the worst and most miserable sinner you will ever meet in your life. Now you're laughing, but probably the second statement would have been way more true. But that's usually not the way we lead, is it? Someone once said <laughs> that everyone is mentally and emotionally disturbed. They said, if the person says they're sane, it just means that you don't know them very well. <laughs> we typically don't begin with our doubt. We begin with our strengths, not our weaknesses. We're not told who doubted. And we're not told why. It would appear that the doubt is centered on the idea that this person might be an imposter. Is this really Jesus? And when you come to church, and, and you come to this church, and we talk about the Jesus of the Bible, and a little bit later on we're going to have communion, and, and maybe you grew up in a religious tradition which had all kinds of wild and crazy ideas about who Jesus was or wasn't. And some of you may still have doubts about your role and your relationship in this great big thing called the church, called Christianity, called worship and discipleship or participation in evangelism. Nobody knows better than me that people go to church for reasons different from why I go to church. But Jesus shows up and Jesus speaks. And the moment that Jesus speaks with authority, I'm going to suggest to you that 
the doubts begin to dissipate in verse 18. It says, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I want you to understand what's happening for the people who are doubting. There is Jesus, back from the dead, speaking in a way that is understandable and recognizable. I'm going to suggest to you that hundreds of people who were there are going, it is Jesus. That's him. I recognize his voice. I recognize his words. He speaks. He is recognized. Jesus reminds the audience that all authority has been given to him in heaven on, and on earth. And immediately there's the rub. In a fallen world, men and women rebel against authority. There's a growing population of people who believe that personal feelings, personal preferences, personal beliefs are determined by the individual, by the culture, by the government. God makes a bold statement that it is not the individual and it is not the culture and it is not the government who determines what's true and what's false, what's right and what's wrong. There is a God in heaven who has spoken on the subject. <laughs> That's never more true than if you ever go to Washington, D.C., it's interesting to me how many people think that government is the solution to their problem. If the National Day of Prayer does anything else, it, it, it reminds us that we are dependent upon a God and that we must cry out to this God. But, but again, understand what's, what's going on in, in the text. In Matthew 28, 18, when he speaks and he says what he says, the Lord Jesus maintains that all authority in heaven and on earth, and this is important, belongs exclusively to him. He, 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 it, it belongs exclusively to him. So whatever authority that a government has, whatever authority that a, an individual has, whatever authority a human being has, they have it because he gives it to them. Now we understand what Jesus said to Pilate when he said, when Pilate said to him, don't you understand that I have the ability to kill you or to set you free? And Jesus looks at him and says, any authority that you have was given to you from somebody else. I got to tell you something. There's certain things that you should, you would normally never say. I mean, if a person says, I have authority to kill you or put you to death, it, usually if you're smart at that point, you just keep your mouth shut. But Jesus tells the truth. He says that every, your authority has come from somewhere, someone else. And so your ability to do what it is that you may or may not do has been imparted to you. The Lord Jesus maintains that this authority is given exclusively to him. The word translated authority is important in the text and in the context. It's the Greek word exousia. There's two kinds of words that are translated authority. The first one, 
exousia that's used here is also used in John 5, 27. It translates right. In Revelation 22, 14, jurisdiction. Luke 23, 7, liberty. And also in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, power. And so exousia means the kind of authority that gives you the right to do what you will do. The second word is dunamis. It's a different word. It's intrinsic power. Dunamis is a word that you would use to describe the, the self-sufficient ability to do something. Let me give you an example. If a 3,000-pound vehicle starts barreling towards a police officer and the police officer says, stop in the name of the law, does he as an individual have the ability to keep that 3,000 pound vehicle from running him over? The answer is no. He doesn't have dunamis. He doesn't have the physiological ability to keep the car from coming. But when he says stop in the name of the law, what will happen if you don't stop and you decide to run over him? What he's basically made a statement is, I have the authority to ask you to stop, and if you refuse to obey my authority, then the authority that's been given to all, every police officer in the state of Colorado in the United States of America will be brought to bear to ensure that you comply. That's exousia. It's the delegated authority. In Mark chapter 3, we read that Jesus went up to a mountain and called whom he would. They came to him and he appointed 12 to be with them and he sent them to preach and to have authority, same word, authority to heal sickness and to cast out demons, verse 15 of Mark chapter 3. The same word is used in John's gospel, that for those who believe in Jesus have the power, same word, to become children of God, John 1, 12. And so that when you preach the gospel and you say, Jesus loves you, God loves you. If you'll turn from your sin, if you'll accept him as your savior, he will forgive you, he'll come into your life. You have the authority to say that because it's true. Matthew's gospel repeats the theme over and over again. Jesus has all authority in teaching, Matthew 7, 29. Healing, Matthew 8, 1 through 13. Forgiving sins, Matthew 9, verse 6. Jesus has authority over Satan and demons and delegates that authority to the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. He gave them power, same word, authority, over unclean spirits, to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now Matthew makes it clear that the authority of Jesus reaches everywhere. There is no space in heaven where his authority does not reach. There is no space on earth where his authority does not reach. And so now we obey Jesus without fear. Why? Because no matter where he leads us, no matter what circumstances we face, Jesus, because he has all authority, is also making the statement that he is in control. Even though it looks like our country is out of control. 
guess what? Jesus remains in control. Even though circumstances in your life may seem out of control, he remains in control. Even though circumstances... don't seem to submit to his control. He remains in control. And what is the ultimate? I mean, out of all of the authority that Jesus possesses, what is the ultimate authority that Jesus possesses? Jesus has the right, read authority, to raise the dead and judge the dead. And so imagine you say to a person, If you continue doing what you're doing, you're going to die. The Bible says it's appointed once for a person to die, and then the judgment. The Bible says the soul that sins it shall surely die. And guess what? Out of all of the billions of people who have made their way to the planet Earth and who have lived their lives and their lives have unfolded, they've eventually met their maker. When I was walking through the hollowed halls of the Capitol building, I went past Richard Nixon's former congressional office. I went past Robert F. Kennedy's Senate office and, and, and uh, Ted Kennedy's Senate office. And so I'm there with the a United States, uh, with, with, the, with, with one of the officials, and we're walking down the hall, and I said, did you, did you know that I can do all three Kennedys? So we're in the Senate hall. And he goes, do Bobby Kennedy. And I said, we're in the hall and you can hear it echoing throughout the hall. My, you know, I never could get used to calling my brother, Mr. President. But I remember those long leisurely walks along Hyannis Port and I would say, mother, did you bring the martini mix? <laughs> and he'd say, do Ted. And I said, my brother need not be idolized in death nor enlarged beyond that which he was in life. Let him be remembered simply as a good and decent man who saw wrong, tried to ride it. Saw war, tried to stop it saw water, tried to walk on it. (laughs) Yeah, you can hear the people laughing. It's very hard to get all consumed with power in the nation's capital when you're putting it in context. Jesus is the one who has all authority. I heard a commercial where a man calls a hotel desk complaining about his dirty room. The receptionist said, I'm sorry. Well, aren't you going to do something about it? He replied, I'm only authorized to apologize. (laughs) Jesus is authorized not simply to apologize. but to come into your life, to heal you, to forgive you, to strengthen you, to give you hope. He has all authority. And now he's going to use that authority as the basis for the apostles and disciples to preach and to teach and to make disciples. 
So when you are asked, what right do you have to tell people the good news? When the missionary is in Ireland, when Bill Hansberger is talking to someone who's involved in the occult or witchcraft, what gives them the right? What gives them the right to tell people the good news, to teach them, to disciple them, to baptize them? What gives them the right to say, God loves you. God sent Jesus into the world to die for you. He rose from the dead to prove his claims. He says that he would be with us and in us. You have the right because he has given us the right. During the Revolutionary War, George Washington required the, the soldiers to renounce their allegiance to King George III and to swear allegiance and fidelity to the United States of America. Soldiers, peace officers, special agents, legislators, judges, even the president of the United States swears an oath, usually on a Bible, to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. It wasn't very far from there. It wasn't very far from there at Quantico, Virginia, where the assistant director of the FBI told me and a group of people like me to raise their right hand and to swear to God to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. He made it clear that only two people have the authority, according to law, to do what he is doing, the director of the FBI and the him, the assistant director of the FBI. That when he told me what I must do, he was giving me authority to act on behalf of the United States of America. Jesus is calling you to support and defend his mission. Even though you may have never held up your right hand, you may never have put your hand on the Bible. Jesus is calling you. It begins when you recognize him and you make yourself available to him and you worship him and look at the king's uncompromising activity in verses 19 through 20. He says in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. The disciples' mandate include reaching. It includes teaching the nations, ethnos. On what basis are these instructions given? On the basis of his authority from the earlier verse. This has been called the great commission. And so three commands are given, not suggestions, Three commands. Number one, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Number two, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Number three, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. The Lord begins his instructions by saying, and don't miss this in verse 19, go. It's, the verb construction is present participle. The idea is going. So the idea is not staying, but going. And if for whatever reason you're 
staying, then you should have a very good reason why you're staying. But here in the present participle, the idea is this. Because it's in the present participle, it means as you're going, while you're going, while you're going, and while you keep going. The only command, the only command is to make disciples. So the idea is go, keep going, while, you're, while you go and while you're going, you're making disciples. You're making disciples in the children's ministry. If Washington shows me anything at all, it shows me that there are adults who want to act like children. But in our children's ministry, we want our children to prepare to be adults for Jesus. And so we're going to teach them the Bible. We're going to instruct them in a biblical worldview, reminding them that the Bible is real and true and it can be trusted and that the commands that God has given, that they can be trusted. The only command is make disciples. And so here's the idea. Go while you're going. As you continue going, make disciples. Go because you should go. Again, unless you're ordered to stay. We should go because Jesus has promised to impart strength and power. So here's the idea. I've given you authority. Go. Keep going. I've given you strength, power, and authority. We should go. Why should we go? Because Jesus is worthy of honor. Jesus is worthy of praise. Jesus is worthy of glory, homage, faith, and obedience. In Mark's gospel, we read in chapter 16, verse 15, go into all the world. So what does it mean to make disciples? At the most basic level, a disciple is one who learns from a teacher. And so this word, make disciples, is very, very specific. Making disciples must mean instructing new believers on who Jesus is, what Jesus taught, the identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, the destiny of Jesus. We teach people how to follow Jesus and submit to Jesus, obey Jesus. And if you're not teaching people how to know him and love him and follow him, then you're probably not doing discipleship. We take up his mission of love and compassionate service to those whom Jesus brings into our life. Who has Jesus brought into your life? Has Jesus brought your children and your grandchildren into your life? Has he brought your friends and your neighbors into your life? Who has Jesus brought into your life? In Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verse 14, it says, quote, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief, their hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen, unquote. We're not surprised that when Jesus first shows up to them, they don't believe and they hadn't believed. Remember what we've already learned in Matthew's gospel. Remember they had rejected his own statement. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to come back to life. You know what? That's a very clever thing to say, but we don't believe you. 
then they don't believe the empty tomb, then they don't believe the angel's message, then they don't believe the women's testimony. And so don't get frustrated when your family and friends say, I don't believe you. That should cause you to smile and say, you know what? You're halfway there. <laughs> Every believer starts off life as an unbeliever. Just like you. Just like you. You heard this story your whole life. You may have grown up in a religious tradition where you went to that religious tradition and you did the religious rituals and you did what you thought was necessary to be a religious person. We're not surprised when we're met with skepticism and unbelief. The next verse in Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verse 15 reads, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. In previous missions, Jesus had sent his disciples only to the Jews. Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. He said, go into the streets and go into the villages. Go to the Jewish people. But now the mission is expanded and it includes the world and it includes everyone in the world. Jesus is the Lord of the earth. Jesus died for all people groups on the planet earth. There is not a single human being who's been immune from the curse of sin. There's not a single human being that the solution to the problem of their sin is the Lord Jesus. The preaching of the gospel is going to result in one of two things always. Some will believe and be saved. Others will not believe and be condemned. Some will believe and be saved. Others will not believe and be condemned. So how far have we gone into the world? According to the Joshua Project, there are 17,009 people groups in the world. What constitutes a people group? Ethnos. Again, remember, shared language, shared culture, shared ethnicity, sometimes geography, sometimes religion, sometimes caste system, sometimes worldview, or a combination of those things. There are 7,079 or the, excuse me, there are 7,079 unreached people groups. Well, what does that mean? What's an unreached people group? It means that less than 2% of the total population of that group are evangelical, and less than 5% Christian adherent. Think Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant. Which countries have the most unreached people groups? Number one, India, 2,276. China, 445. Pakistan, 386. Bangladesh, 293. Nepal, 258. As Christianity shrinks in Europe and North America, the numbers of Christians are growing in Central America, Latin America, Africa, and Asia. Where are Christians most likely to be persecuted? 
in Muslim-dominated countries. Nine of the top 10 countries where Christians experience the most virulent, vicious, persistent, wicked, severe persecution include Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, Eritrea. The only non-Muslim country on the whole list is North Africa. When I was in Washington, D.C., we would get into a cab. Every time Scott Kerr would ask, where are you from? Ghana, West Africa, Nigeria, Ethiopia. You don't have to go anywhere other than Washington, D.C. if you want to reach unreached people groups. Now, I'm not saying don't go to India, China, Pakistan, or Bangladesh. What I am saying is God in his grace and his mercy have filled our country with people from Romania, people from Russia, people from all over the world. And again, the number of evangelicals on the earth is growing but so is the absolute number of non-believers. In the year 1900, there was 1.06 billion unbelievers on the planet Earth. In 1970, 2.46 unbelievers. The year 2000, 4.14 billion unbelievers. 2016, 4.96 billion unbelievers. I want you to just think about that for just a moment. Because if you take every single unbelieving person who has ever lived from the time of Jesus until the time I graduated from high school, I don't know when you graduated, there are more unbelievers on the planet earth now than the sum and the substance of all unbelievers who lived in the last two centuries. Where do most of these remaining 7,000 unreached people groups live? Most are in what we call restricted access countries. What percentage of the world's Hindu, Muslim, Buddhists do not know? Forget Christ. I want you just to pause for a moment and think how many of these people don't even know one single person who identifies themselves as a Christ follower. In other words, if you went all over the world, you ask every Muslim, every Hindu, every Buddhist, and you just simply said, do you know even one person who loves Jesus and follows Jesus, 81% of the, of the total um, don't know Christ. The total number of missionaries who work among the unreached, if you take every missionary who exists, only one in 10 focus on the unreached people groups. In the world, there are people groups with no known evangelical church. There's no known mission. There's no known ministry tools available to them. There's no known agency work. And a large population that numbers in the millions. Would you like to know about those places? If you would like to go to know about those places, go to finishingthetask.com. I don't know if James or the rest of those people put it up there, but I'm going to repeat it twice because I don't see it on the screen. Go to finishingthetask.com, 
finishingthetask.com, the psalmist wrote in, in Psalm 2.8, Ask of me, ask of me, and I will surely give the nations ethnos as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. I don't normally do this, but we're going to do that right now. In Psalm 2.8, ask of me and I will give the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Let's do it. Let's ask him. Let's ask him to give the nations as Christ's inheritance and the ends of the earth as his possession. And as we pray, don't be surprised if God begins to answer the prayer by stirring on your heart. We're going to pray right now. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're going to do what the psalmist said. You instructed us, ask me and I'll give you the nations. And so, Lord, we are asking you for the nations. Lord, we are asking you for the 7,000 plus unreached people groups. Lord, we're asking you, Lord, we know that there's a presence in Hindu countries and Muslim countries and Buddhist countries. We know that there are 300 million plus followers in China. We know that there are literally millions of people in South Korea. Lord, we pray that the, that the peace that would come about in North and South Korean peninsula will result in a mass migration of Christians to the north and that the evangelism explosion would begin. Lord, we ask, Father, that you will do exactly that, that you will reach the nations, that they would become your inheritance because we know that everyone who knows you and loves you in Christ is a part of the inheritance. So who remains to be unreached? your neighbors, your friends, the 50 largest unreached people groups are posted at joshuaproject.net. If you want to begin to pray for these people, go to joshuaproject.net. All 50 of these people groups have less than 2% Christ followers. Individuals in the groups may be limited or have no access to the gospel whatsoever. The 50 unreached people groups comprise... 1.48 billion people on the planet. One in five people on the earth live in those 50 unreached people groups. Every group is larger than 10 million people. None of the indigenous church has a gospel presence. 23 are Muslim, 18 are Hindu, 6 are Buddhist. Two are ethnic religions. One is non-religious. 44 of the 50 unreached people groups live in the 1040 window. Some have suggested that since Mark's gospel says believe and be baptized, that both belief and baptism produces salvation for sinners, but nothing could be further from the truth. That can't mean that. For these reasons, quickly, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, but assured of salvation by Jesus on the basis of trust and belief. The Gentiles in Caesarea were baptized after they were saved in Acts chapter 10 verse 44. Jesus himself didn't baptize, which seems strange if baptism is necessary for salvation. Paul thanked God that he baptized only a few of the Corinthian believers. There are over 150 passages in the New Testament where salvation is by faith alone. But this doesn't mean 
that this passage is ignored. Every single person who's discipled should be baptized because it's the believer's way of going on record. I am a Christ follower. I am a lover of Jesus. I want the entire world to know that the life that I used to have is no longer the life that I now have. And so, what does it mean to baptize in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? It must mean part of a creedal statement that we believe what the Bible says about the Father and about the Son and about the Holy Spirit. Martin Luther said, the creed confesses three persons as comprehended in one divine essence, each one, however, retaining his distinct personality. To the Father, we ascribe the work of creation. To the Son, the work of redemption. To the Holy Spirit, the power to forgive sin, to gladden, to strengthen, to transport us from our death to life. And so... Discipleship incorporates teaching to observe everything that Jesus commanded. That's why we've devoted our ministry to teaching everything in Matthew, everything in Mark, everything in Luke, everything in John, everything in the New Testament, but we're not content. We have to go back and teach Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. With every command, Jesus gives a promise of help. What are some of those commands? Lay not up for yourself treasure upon the earth, Mark 6, 19. Lean not to your own understanding, Proverbs 3, 5. Remember Jesus said, tell them everything I told you. What did he say? Don't lay up treasure on the earth. Don't lean to your own understanding. Don't let your heart be troubled in John 14. Don't look at those things which are seen, 2 Corinthians 4, 18. Lose not those things which we have wrought, 2 John chapter 8. Do not love this world, 1 John 2, 15. Do not lie to one another, Colossians 3, 9. So we're supposed to stop doing all of the things that he's asked us not to do. And we're to start doing everything that he's asked us to do. And look what it says at the end of the verse. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The word lo means behold or look. It's supposed to arrest your attention. When Jesus says, I am with you always, note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, I will be with you. It says, I am with you. G. Campbell Morgan preached from this text, called it a promise. A lady came up to that venerable preacher and said, it's not a promise. It's a fact. I would be the last person in the world who would want to disagree with G. Campbell Morgan. But I suspect the lady was right. And Campbell Morgan knew she was right. And he basically said, you're right. It's not simply a promise. It's a fact. David Livingston was, was in great danger in Africa. And by flickering candlelight, he read these words. These words, lo, I am with you. Then he said, that settles it. These are the words of a gentleman of sacred honor. I will trust him and I won't be afraid. God brought him through his troubles. Years later, he spoke in England and he said, 
the thing that sustained me all those years in Africa were these words, lo, I am with you. You see, that promise and that fact gives you the ability to do what Jesus has asked you to do. Well, what if I don't feel his presence? Well, it makes sense that you would trust your feelings more than Christ's promises because your feelings are more real to you than Jesus' promises. That's why your feelings guide you, direct you, manipulate you. But if you want to grow up, at some point you're going to have to say, God's word, Christ's promise is more real than my feelings. Jesus is with you in suffering, abuse, persecution, martyrdom. Oswald Chambers said, not what the disciple says in public prayer, not what he preaches from pulpit or platform, not what he writes on paper or letters, but what he is in his heart, which God alone determines revelation, character determines revelation who you are inside is going to determine your ability to process this, this information. So the task of reaching a lost and a dying world may seem overwhelming and impossible. But we're given several assurances. The assurance that Jesus will show up recognition of his identity, authority to speak his message, and ultimately, ultimately, his presence in your life. Billy Graham once said, I'm not responsible to preach the gospel to the generation that came before me. I'm not responsible to preach the gospel to the generation that will come after me. He said, we preach Jesus now. We teach him now. At the National Day of Prayer, I got to speak to uh, his daughter, Anne Graham Lotz, who just buried her father. Reminding her of the great contribution that he made to all the body, and the contribution that she continues to make. But she said something interesting. She said, my father was a gifted evangelist. She said, I don't have the gift of evangelism. She said, I just simply have the duty and the opportunity to present Christ wherever I go, to whoever I meet. You may never teach in a stadium, but the next person that God entrusts to you could be that person who's going to change the entire world. We're going to have communion in a moment. We're going to conclude our service. But while we do that, I just want you to pray 
for our great nation. I want you to pray for the missionaries that you were introduced to today. I want you to pray about the role that God has called you to in the body of Christ and to this church specifically. So I'm going to pray for you right now. Heavenly Father, I pray for these men and women. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to their heart the gifts and callings that you've placed in their life. Lord, I pray that with their gift and calling that they would come to understand what that is. Their availability to use it as they recognize who Jesus is. And Lord, we remember shortly before his death that when he gathered with the disciples in the upper room, he said, I'm going to die. I'm going to become a sacrifice. Lord, according to the Bible, it says he was going to take bread and break it and give it to his disciples. And he was going to take a cup and pass it among the disciples. He would say to them, eat and drink. He would say, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new, the everlasting covenant, which will be shed for the forgiveness of sin. And Lord, you gave us permission to do this in remembrance of Jesus. And so this, this morning, Lord, we remember Jesus in his death and sacrifice, in his resurrection and exaltation. Lord, we remember Jesus in his authority and ability to impart to people a task and then the strength to accomplish that task. And so, Lord, as we worship you, as we spend this time both in worship and praise, Lord, we would remember <laughs> that the fulfillment begins when we recognize Jesus, when we worship Jesus, when we believe Jesus, when we obey Jesus. So Lord, prepare our hearts. Amen.